We're glad that you're with us this morning. I want to thank uh, the folks, our guests, for leading us in worship and using their talents for God's glory. Um, I want to take a second here at the beginning to brag on you folks as we have guests come, new folks, and uh, they give me contact information. I contact them and ask them, well, what'd you think? What'd you like? What you didn't like about the church? And Almost the first thing I uh, almost unanimously get back is your folks are really friendly. So I appreciate the fact that you folks are friendly and greet and uh, treat uh, new folks uh, like old folks, uh, old timers. So thank you. And I want to thank our, our, our guest services people because this experience wouldn't be the same without them. Those that in the cafe, and the children's ministry, et cetera, et cetera, sound people. So thank you for using your gifts and talents uh, to serve God and through this church so we can be the church that we are. So we're in a series called The End Commandments. We started it back on Easter. And we talked about Jesus coming to earth and starting what he called a, a new religion, a new brand of of religion, a new covenant, a new relationship between God and his people. Um, he was Jewish and he entered Jewish culture, but Judaism was waiting for the Messiah, the one that was going to deliver them from the old law and the old system. So he gave them a new commandment. He said, got lots of commandments. Here's the most important thing. Love one another same way I love you, which means eventually I'm going to die for you. So that's how we are supposed to live. Everything else kind of falls underneath that commandment. And then Jesus did some miracles, some teaching, and then he died. And it seemed like game over, right? The Messiah, the Son of God, can't die. And of course, three days later, tomb was empty, he rose from the dead, and everything changed. Everything that seemed impossible before became possible now. And then he said, go with this message. <clears throat> so Christianity is really a resurrection religion. Uh, the first century church, first 30, 40 years, all they had was the resurrection appearances and people that told about it and people that passed on the stories of Jesus, miracles and teachings. Had no Bible. If you were a Gentile, you didn't accept the Old Testament. So you had no Bible. And yet, Christianity just exploded and grew covered the whole, whole known, known world back in those early days. How, how did it do that? What, what was the key? What, was, what did they have? And so that's what, what is the crux of this series called the End Commandments. They basically had the resurrection stories and these commands of Jesus, and we're looking at five of them. Now, last week we looked at fear not, and they, and they look, seem not even like commandments. They seem like these impossible instructions these things that we're told to do that we can't really do, how can I not fear? Uh, that's just part of life, isn't it? And we're going to look at even one that's more difficult today, if you can believe that. So what did it look like to be a Jesus follower in the first century? Paul wasn't a Christian yet, so he didn't have to start his writings. What did it look like? So looked so impossible until the resurrection. The disciples were... We're afraid of everything before the, Jesus died or when they died. After he rose, they became fearless, and many of them were, were killed for their faith. So we're going to look at the story today, where we find the end commandment we want to talk about today. But it's really important to understand the context or the environment or where it takes place. It takes on a, 
a whole new uh, uh, emotion for us. Uh, so it's a story that's pretty familiar, familiar, and I would ask you to try and not fast forward to the end because most of us know how it ends. Just pretend you don't know how it ends and just kind of follow along as we go through the story and kind of understand the emotion and the drama uh, that's going on uh, in this text. It's, it's actually in, in um, John chapter 8. So where did it take place? Well, I'm going to show you a picture. This is the uh, called the Temple Mount. This is where the temple was 2,000 years ago. It was destroyed in 70 AD, so it hadn't been there for almost 2,000 years. But this is the temp- present-day Temple Mount. Now, on the Temple Mount today is a mosque, the Dome of the Rock, and the Dome of the Chain. That's the three buildings on this site. They're all uh, Muslim-controlled. So Muslims control this area for over 1,000 years. They worship there. Jews are kind of left out. <laughs> They're on the outside of the wall. And the, uh, some of you might have heard of the wailing wall. So they stand against the wall and, and wail about the fact that they, they don't have their temple anymore. It's actually a 30-acre site. So let's see, our church sits on five acres here. So, you know, it's a pretty big, big site. This, in Jesus' day, was the center of God, the center of God's activity. This is where you went if you wanted to encounter God. Now, thankfully, today we don't have to go to a specific place. But in Jesus' day, this was where you went to encounter God. Now, once you went into the gates of the outer wall, this is the south wall here. Obviously, this is west and north. Once you went through the gate, you entered the largest area, which was called the court of the Gentiles. And most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. That means we're not Jewish. This is the part we could go into. We couldn't go any farther than that, but we could go that far. After that area became the court of women. So if you were a Jewish woman, you could go into the next, through another gate, into the next area. And then if you were a Jewish man, you could go through the last gate into where the Holy of Holies was, the temple, actual temple, and the altar was, where the, and all the animals were, and, and when the animals were actually sacrificed, it was kind of a noisy, bloody, gory kind of place. But that's where you went to encounter God. You would go to the altar and offer your sacrifice, grain offering or animal offering, <clears throat> and uh, then leave forgiven. So this was the center of, of God's activity. We'll show you a more close-up view of this south wall, because this is an important wall. This is where the gate was. It's about 900 feet long, so it's pretty long. And uh, had a gate, and this was the gate that you went through to uh, make your, enter the temple and, and make your sacrifice. Uh, the stairs were about uh, 250 feet long, pretty long. The steps were kind of high, like a foot high, so they're kind of awkward or hard to climb up. And this is what you had to do when you wanted to get forgiveness for your sins. You had to climb up these stairs, go through the different courts, and then get to the, to the altar. And once you made your sacrifice, then you could be restored. So this was the path of atonement, the path of restoration, the path of forgiveness. We actually call it the stairway to heaven because that's where they reconnected with God. So this is the holy place. This is the place where God is and you don't want to take your sin there, or you want to leave your sin there, so you can leave um, forgiven, reconnected with God. So we're going to look at the story in, in John chapter 8. Again, just hang with me. 
just kind of appreciate the drama and the emotion and don't anticipate the end, if you know the story. Early in the morning, he, meaning Jesus, went back to the house of God, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So this was Jesus' habit. This was his pattern, not just on Sundays, but many times during the week. He would go to the, to the temple area. He was actually in the court of the Gentiles, all right, the biggest area, the first area once you went into the gate. And he would go there early in the morning, possibly before the sun came up. Um, if some of you aren't morning people, evidently Jesus was a morning person. He got up early. And then he went there to teach. That was his, his pattern. And where Jesus went to teach, people came. He was a good teacher. He was charismatic. People would flock to him. And so he had this big following, even early in the morning at the temple. <clears throat> then the teachers of the law and proud religious law keepers came to him. So these were the, these were the big wigs of the Judaism. And they had fancy robes and things they wore on their heads, and, and they walk into this area, which would be common for them to walk in this area. But in this case, they brought a woman who had been caught doing a sex sin. All right, so they're dragging this woman along, which would be unusual, <laughs> very unusual. And they were the most important people in Judaism, so they got respect from all the people around. So they bring this woman in, and they said, and they made her stand in front of them all. Right, so putting on her on display, uh, she's really a pawn, but they brought her here for a purpose, and they're going to say something to Jesus. And so, the, so John's recording this for us, and he was there, and he said, this is what they asked. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of doing a sex sin. Now, the interesting thing is, where had they, this lady been? It's very unlikely that she was caught then, most likely she was caught the day before or the night before, and they had hung on to her someplace, kept her just for the specific purpose of bringing her before Jesus to try and trap him. They've done this before, and they were trying to trap him again, and this time they thought they really had him, all right? And as we proceed with the story, you're going to see why. But they had an agenda, and the agenda was to divide Jesus from his Followers. He was popular, they were jealous, and uh, they were trying to divide him. So if they could discredit Jesus, uh, they'd, ha- they'd had, a, had a victory. So what the, the sin they were talking about was one of the Ten Commandments, do not do sex sins or commit adultery. And most people, even people out there, people that go to church, they know this one. <laughs> they probably know two or three. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't lie. Maybe, and then the rest of them, they, they know this one. So everybody knows this one. And this is one of the big top ten no-nos in Judaism. And so again, they're in the last place you want to be when you've been caught in sin. Because you're in this holy place, right? You're at the temple. And maybe church being here today is the last place you want to be. Maybe you're uncomfortable. This lady was probably really uncomfortable. And she felt ashamed. And maybe, you know, you've done something last night or last week. And maybe that's the reason here you're trying to make up for it. I don't know. But we're glad that you're here. And you can relate to this lady because she was uncomfortable too. All right. And she was a lot more comfortable at the end. And hopefully you will be also. So this was a place of sacrifice. And it looked like she was going to be sacrificed. All right. Even though she was caught in the sin, she wouldn't have been you know, display among all these people. 
And she was filthy, probably full with overwhelming guilt and shame. So, the story goes on. The, uh, the religious leaders, speaking again, said, Moses told us in the law. Now, Moses is, to, to the Jew at that day, Moses was the, was, was the top of the rung. He, he was the most important man. Uh, you know, Abraham was pretty important, and some other guys, but Moses was most important because he got the Israelites out of Egypt. He brought the law down off of Mount Sinai for the people, brought them the law. So Moses was the most important. And so they're going to say, Moses taught us. Now, it's interesting that they're going to try and tell Jesus <laughs> uh, what Moses taught in the law. Jesus actually wrote the law. But in their perspective, this is just a, a, a Jewish teacher, Jesus, not the Messiah. So Moses told us in the law. And what did he tell us? To throw stones and kill a woman like this. What do you say about it? Now Jesus could say, hey, you know the law? You know what Moses said? Why have you brought her to me? You could have stoned her already. He could have said that. Now I'm thinking that he probably was thinking what the law actually says is this. So we're going to look at what the law actually says. In Leviticus, it says, if a man does a sex sin. Now for adultery to happen... There's got to be a man involved, right, with this woman. Where's the man? First and foremost, it's the man who does a sex sin with another man's wife or even his friend's wife. I don't know what difference that makes, but both the sinful man and the woman must be put to death. But there's no man there because the issue wasn't the adultery. The issue was here, hey, we can get Jesus. We can finally get him. We can trap him. We can lose, make him lose his popularity. In fact, the Bible goes on to say they were trying to set a trap to find something against him, something to accuse him of, something to make him guilty so that people, he'll, he'll lose his reputation. So again, their goal was to divide Jesus from the people. And they thought this time we got him, right? The law is black and white. Here's the lady caught. We got him this time. So it's really setting up this Jesus versus Moses, right? We got the law of Moses Moses is the most important guy, and Jesus, you can't be more important than Moses. You can't be greater than Moses. Or Jesus versus the temple. They're in the temple. This is the holy place. This is where you go to get your sins forgiven. Jesus, you certainly can't be greater than the temple. You can't forgive sin. Ultimately, it's Jesus versus the whole Bible, their Old Testament, their whole Bible. Jesus, you can't be greater than all the words of God that we have recorded. You can sense and feel the drama. See, the, the lady's not the main character in this story. <laughs> we kind of think that, but it's really this battle between the religious leaders and Jesus. That's where the battle's going on. She's just a pawn. She's just being used. And the drama, the tension is between Jesus and the religious leaders. Can we get him this time? Can we trap him? Can we make him lose his reputation? Jesus, in fact, the disciples probably thought at this point, uh, thank Jesus they got you this time. You're stuck. The law says that. She's guilty. You know, maybe we need, you know, maybe we back away from following him because he can't get out of this one, can he? Well, let's see what happens, right? So, Jesus got down and began to write in the dust with his finger. So they came to him, asked this question, wanting an answer, and Jesus 
gets down and starts writing in the dust with his finger. Now, something's lost on us because most of us aren't Jewish background. But in Judaism, they actually had this belief that the Ten Commandments were written, on, engraved on those stones by the finger of God. God took his finger and kind of wrote in the stone. So that was a common belief uh, of Judaism. So we've kind of got this picture. We've got the finger of God versus the finger of Jesus because they didn't believe it was God. So this is another more drama, more tension going on as Jesus is using his finger to write on the ground. <clears throat> so what's going on? They, they're, they're kind of... Uh, well, they are. They're persistent. They keep on asking him. All right. Wait a minute, Jesus. We asked you a question. We want an answer. We expect an answer. You're this all-wise teacher. You've you got to give us an answer. And so he stood up and gives them an answer. <clears throat> Anyone of you who is without sin. Go ahead. You can throw the first stone at her. Now, again, where were they? They're on the Temple Mount, the holiest place on the earth to a a Jew. And when you went there, you were sensed, you were aware, if not before, more aware of the fact that you are of your personal failures, your sins, the things you messed up. And we all have done that. And so in that place, you're especially aware of it because that's where you went to confess it and get forgiven for it. Now, the other interesting thing about this is, was there someone there without sin that could have thrown the stone at her? Yeah, Jesus, right? So there actually was somebody that could have done this. It was the one that asked the, or made, the, made the challenge. Yeah, anyone without sin could throw the first stone. <clears throat> and then he gets down and writes in the dust again. Now, theologians and religious type, we kind of like to conjecture, what was Jesus writing on the ground? What could he possibly be writing? Is he writing some scripture verse or something? Here's what I think he wrote, all right? Takes one to know one. <laughs> uh, it's probably not. It, probably was, it was an Aramaic or something anyway. It would have been in English. But uh, that's what I'm thinking he's thinking, uh, all right? So, so he goes on. When they heard what he had said, they went away one by one, or they left one by one. They went out. So they left the court of the Gentiles, went out the gate and down the steps. They left, beginning with the oldest one until they were all gone. Now, why the oldest one? Well, the oldest ones would have gone up and down these steps into the altar, offered sacrifices years and years and years. And so they would have been especially aware of the fact that This was a place not to condemn others for sin, but this is a place to get forgiveness for our personal sin. It probably eventually dawned on them where they were at and the purpose of that place. Now, Jesus wasn't bothered like we are by the same sins we are bothered with. Things like sex sins and and murders and, you know, uh, child abuse. These are the sins that really bother us. There's really one sin that really bothered Jesus that he got irate about. It wasn't any of those things, even those things, even those things are terrible. It was self-righteousness. The idea that you think you're better than somebody else. Just because I don't, I haven't killed anybody. And of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed that. Did you hate somebody? And I haven't committed adultery. Well, did you lust after? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what Jesus really hated was self-righteousness. 
And that's what these folks were exhibiting by bringing this lady caught in adultery, thinking they were better than her. <clears throat> so, they, so they go out. And Jesus was left alone with her. So he stood up and said to her, Woman, where are those who spoke against you? Where, where are your accusers? Now, I believe some of the crowd was still there, but the accusers were all gone. So then he goes on. Uh, has no man said you are guilty? Now, she w- was guilty. <laughs> um, she was accused. But he's saying here, has no one forced you to pay? Has no one actually thrown a stone at you? Because that's what the law says, because you are guilty. Has no one forced you to pay? And her response is, no one, sir. No, they're all gone. No one is left to accuse me or to uh, make me pay. What was the just penalty? By according to the law for what she had done. Why? Because all of them had sinned also. So, are you ready for Jesus' response if you don't know what it is? And it may be something, maybe the reason you're here today. The crowd decides some of you need to hear what Jesus said to this woman. Uh, maybe because, of, uh, because you've never heard it before. Or maybe because you've got some different idea what God is like and Christianity and, and uh, so forth and how God views us and deals with our sin. So here's what she said. What he said. Neither do I say you're guilty, but she is guilty. Neither do I say that you have to pay for this. I am not going to stone you. Nobody's going to stone you. You do not have to pay. Now, the interesting thing is that before long, she was going to, he was going to die and pay for her adultery and your adultery and my adultery and your sin and my sin. So Jesus is saying, I've come to replace all this. We no longer need to stone people. We no longer need to bring walk up the steps and go into the temple and kill an animal or bring some grains to offering and burn it on the altar to get forgiveness. Neither do I say you have to pay. <clears throat> and then he gives her an instruction, actually a command. It comes from Jesus' command. He says, go on your way. Go on down the steps you're, you're free from this penalty. You're free. From, you're not, don't have to worry about being stoned. You're free to go. Wow. mean I got away with it? No, he said you're free, but. You're free, but, but what? And do not sin again. Now notice he doesn't say do not commit adultery again. Do not do a sex sin again. He said go and do not sin or sin not. Now again, is this realistic? Is this possible? See, part of our problem is we know it's not possible, so sometimes we don't try. I thought about a baseball analogy. When you get up to bat playing baseball or softball, whatever, you know you're not going to get hit a hit every time. So sometimes you don't try just because you can't get a hit every time? No, you try every time. So Jesus is saying, hey, (laughs) try not to sin every time. Now, it's really important to comprehend what the tone is here. Because maybe you've been to churches where the tone is, 
you are a rotten sinner. Or maybe you heard some preacher on TV, or maybe your parents treated you that way, or a spouse treated you that way because of something you've done wrong. What is the tone here? Is it condemning? Is Jesus shaking his finger at her? No. It's a tone of love. It's a tone of compassion. So the command is to literally, what is it? Sin not. Don't sin. Now here's, here's what's really important. Jesus knew what most of us discover once we've lived long enough, and it's this. Every sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. Every sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. Something or someone dies. The one that really bothers me is our conscience. Part of our conscience is killed. If you've been around for a while, every one of us can think of something that bothered our conscience once upon a time. It doesn't bother us anymore. Even though we know it should bother us. Maybe it's something that we watch or something we listen to or whatever it might be or some way of acting. Something dies. Part of our conscience dies. Some relationship has died. Maybe you've had a marriage die because of sin. Maybe a relationship with a sibling or a spouse or a parent or someone. The relationship has died because of sin. Some people have actually died. Uh, have my father-in-law died of, uh, <clears throat> of alcoholism. Getting drunk is a sin, and that's that lifestyle he lived, and he died younger than he should have because of a sin. He literally died. Something always dies when sin is involved. And, but Jesus is saying, you don't need to be punished for this. Because I've already been punished for it. And you're already being punished for this but in the fact that something is dying. So, the consequences of sin is the reason Jesus urges her and you and I to leave our life of sin. Has she broken God's law? Yeah, but that wasn't the issue. That wasn't what was important. What was important was she had broken God's heart. And they were breaking, she was breaking herself. She had lost her reputation, obviously. I don't know what it did to her, her relationships. Now, if you've got kids, you understand this. When your kids do something that hurts them, it hurts you. Remember that old adage, every, you ever say that? When you spank your kids, this hurts me the more than it does you. <laughs> My kids always thought that was really hilarious. Uh, but it's true, isn't it? And as a parent, you understand it, don't you? You hate to do it, but it's important that they learn because you don't want them to continually be hurt by their bad behavior. So, not just for her, but for us. The consequence of our sin is the reason Jesus urges us or you to leave our life of sin. And the amazing thing is, Jesus died for her adultery and for your sin and for my sin. So why do we know that the tone is loving and compassionate? Because anybody that's willing to die for you loves you. So the commandment is sin not. Not because God's going to get you. Because sin has already got you. Jesus died because of your sin. 
and mine. Now, I want to finish something that's a little uncomfortable. What is your sin? Nobody can read your mind. God already knows. What's your sin? What's hurting you? What's killing you? What's hurting your relationships? What's killing your relationships? And I know the pushback, well, it's not easy. Especially if it's some habitual sin, some addictions you might have. Of course it's not easy. Or you would have stopped already. Jesus wouldn't have to command you to. It's all, you get all entangled in it. I was working at a job site yesterday and I've got a couple extension cords and a, and a compression hose and we lay them out there nice and straight in, in the morning and by lunchtime, guess what happens? Because you're walking this way and moving tools this way. They get all tangled up. And it's a lot harder to untangle them than it is to, tang- to get them tangled. We don't even have to try to get them tangled. So what's your sin? So if you go to Jerusalem today, modern Jerusalem today, and you walk up those steps to the wall, south wall, where the gates were to the temple, it's a solid wall. Can't go in. The temple system has been done away with. You, don't, you and I don't have to go there to get our sins paid for. Jesus paid for them on a cross. All that's left for you and I to do is bring him to Jesus. And he has his arms open. He loves us. He died for those sins. Why would we continue in what hurts us and kills him? Let's pray. God, I want to just apologize for myself, ask you to forgive me. Probably I can voice this for all of us. We get comfortable with sin. We get entangled with it, and we know we can't be sinless, so we just kind of, hey, grace will cover it. Uh, God, forgive us for that. Because every sin isn't breaking your law, it's breaking us. And if you're not without Jesus this morning, I hope you understand that he loves you, he's not condemning you, but he wants you to leave that life of sin. He wants you to enter in relationship with him. And it's a gift that he offers us all. So we, I would urge you, as he is urging you, to leave that life of sin and come and join God's family. God, I thank you for that free gift that I get to offer. <laughs> you paid for it, but I get to offer it to everyone. And we pray that those here would accept it. They wouldn't worry about the details. Oh, I've got to change this, got to change that. That, that. That'll come. But yes, Jesus, you love me enough to die for me. That, that's, that's enough. We'll figure out the rest. God, I thank you for the challenge, <laughs> but also the possibility of at any given time to sin not. So I would not be hurt. Those around me would not be hurt. God, that is awesome. We can't thank you enough. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.